From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Omicron variant has taken over the conversation about COVID-19 and pandemic precautions in just a matter of days. Don't just assume that this scratchy throat is nothing. Doctors say it's only a matter of time before the Omicron variant is found here in the U.S. We'll talk with an expert about how Colorado's working to track it and get grounding about the concern. Then, more than a dozen alleged instances of sexual misconduct and abuse have gone unreported over the last two decades at the Colorado Center for the Blind in Littleton. That's according to an investigation by David Gilbert of the Colorado Sun. He joins us with his findings. Later, as Colorado Matters marks 20 years, we recount the little-known story of a U.S. spy ship named after a Colorado town. Today is Giving Tuesday. On this global day of giving, you can make an impact right here at home. Colorado Public Radio is made possible by you. Make your Giving Tuesday gift now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Doctors say it's only a matter of time before the Omicron variant of the COVID-19 virus makes its way to the U.S. It was first discovered last week in South Africa, and already there are two cases detected in Canada. We want to get some grounding to the concerns people have with Omicron and what this means for Colorado. Dr. Anuj Mehta is a pulmonologist who works with Denver Health. He's also helped advise the state of Colorado on vaccine allocation and crisis care standards for patients during the pandemic. Dr. Mehta, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. In an interview today with CPR, the state's epidemiologist explained how Colorado tests and tracks for variants that may be coming into the state. And in essence, it's testing wastewater and also its laboratory, as well as some other private labs, conduct genetic sequencing on positive COVID tests from around the state. What else can you tell us about this testing protocol? I mean, I imagine the state wasn't testing for Omicron even a week ago. So does the CDPHE go back and retest the samples that are on hand? Or do you got to start from scratch with new cases as they come in? Well, full genetic sequencing actually is uh, the standard to look for any type of variant. And that is done on um, samples that go to CDPHE and will detect any number of variants. I think what's unique about Omicron is that it is um, different in several ways that the standard COVID test, while still positive, will look different. And, you know, when uh, when your listeners, if they go get tested, you know, we get a positive or negative for COVID-19. But in the lab, there's a lot more data. And so the results that may not be visible to um, a patient who's getting tested actually may indicate that something is different about the, that specific patient who's testing positive for COVID, and that may prompt uh, uh, that lab to send the sample to CDPHE for full genetic sequencing. And that's how we're really going to um, uh, be able to identify when Omicron um, enters the country and the state. So with that said, are there indications that Omicron is here in Colorado right now, but we just haven't been looking for it? Not that I know of. Um, you know, I think I agree with most other epidemiologists that I think it's a matter of time um, uh, for us to detect it. I think that's what we've seen with every other variant that's uh, um, had uh, good longevity. It's been identified in other countries, then eventually was um, made its way to the United States and then Colorado. So I think it's a matter of time, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that it's already here. 
I believe Colorado was one of the first states to detect the Delta variant. Is there anything that officials here learn from that discovery that might be applicable moving forward through Omicron and, and other future variants? No. And, and again, you know, I think it's more of, of an inevitability. Um, I think there's mm. very little that can be done to prevent it from entering the U.S. and Colorado other than getting higher vaccination rates, um, mask wearing and social distancing. Those are things that will actually prevent um, any variant from from entering um, this uh, entering Colorado. But, uh, you know, just just normal viruses. It's not anything special about COVID, just normal respiratory viruses that they, as they spread over the winter, they make their way through populations. As we mentioned earlier, the Omicron variant of the coronavirus was initially discovered in South Africa. And one of the first physicians there to confirm its existence is Dr. Angelique Coetzee. Here's what she said about moving forward during an interview with CNN. It's not to say that this virus is not going to be extremely virulent going forward. What we're trying to say is the symptoms that people might experience at home, they need to understand that that can be part of this new variant and that you need to check it out. You need to go to the doctor, double Mm. check, do a a PCR or a rapid test. Don't just assume that this scratchy throat is nothing. If it is the Omicron, you might spread it to the rest of the population or the people next to you. And that's what we don't want. Dr. Coetzee mentioned the idea of people testing themselves. Is that really a valid way to determine whether someone has a specific type of variant or do the tests have to evolve? Um, You know, I think, one, we don't necessarily know how well the rapid antigen tests will work on the Omicron variant. So I don't want to say that they will work exactly the same. Um, The PCR tests, I think, are still the mainstay. Those are the best tests that are out there. And I think that the home testing, um, you know, it's not just with Omicron. We know that there um, there's a fairly significant false negative rate with home antigen testing, uh, meaning that you may pop up negative but still have COVID. You know, they're still um, usable at home. I'm not telling people not to use them, but um, I don't think it's, uh, we shouldn't define a public health strategy around home-based testing. And that's why it's still critical when people have symptoms um, that may be consistent with COVID, any of the variants, it's important for people to go and get tested um, you know, I recommend a, a PCR test. That's that's the gold standard. Um, yes, it may take, you know, um, 24 to 48 hours to come back. It may involve a, a difficult swab up the nose, but that's how we're really going to be able to track it. And I think that, you know, the advice from our South African colleagues is really critical. It may not be that you get very sick with Delta or Omicron. Let's remember the vast majority of people that get COVID actually do okay at home. But it's really critical from a public health perspective to know if you have COVID, especially with the more infectious variants. So you could do your due diligence of staying at home. If you have other people living in the house, you really need to isolate from them. And as we identify more and more virulent um, variants, um, meaning that they can spread faster, more infectious variants, it's really critical that we have good testing strategies so people can employ core public health measures to reduce the spread. I just want to dig down a little bit deeper on that. So I know my house has uh, these rapid tests all over in case I need to take them, you know, if I want to go see friends or things like that. You're saying that regardless, we should still be thinking uh, of a PCR test before going out in, in public. I just want to get a little bit more on that. Yeah, you know, it's... I think from a public health strategy perspective, the PCR tests are our gold standard. That's what we use in hospitals for the most part. 
Um, the rapid antigen tests, I think, are a nice add-on. So I think if you're vaccinated and you're going to go see friends, the rapid home antigen test actually makes sense. You know, the chances of you being positive if you're vaccinated is pretty low. Um, and if you have no symptoms, we know that the chances of it being a false negative are much lower. But if you're sick, you know, um, I think that it's better to go get a formal test. We know that the um, the way you do the test, the actual um, uh, procedure of the test can affect whether it's going to be positive or negative. And then we know that there's probably about a 20% false negative rate. Um, you know, how that affects people making individual decisions, you know, I think that's, uh, that's up to each individual. Um, you know, it may not be feasible if you're about to go see friends to wait 48 hours for a PCR turnaround, schedule a test and things like that, as we know that some walk-in centers have um, decreased their capacity. So I think rapid antigen tests have a good role, but I think from defining a public health strategy, um, we need to rely on our PCR tests. Omicron has been categorized as a variant of concern by the World Health Organization. That spawned travel restrictions and talk of new boosters being developed. But as Dr. Coetzee said, most indications, at least initially, have shown people infected with the variants, like you say, are, are, are displaying relatively mild symptoms, at least right now. Should we be concerned that this variant might mutate into something more dangerous? What are some of the things I, doctors like yourself are looking at that might determine where this goes next? Yeah, I think it's a big question about what do we do now and then what do we do in the future? So with Omicron and with the assumption that it's going to make its way into the United States, I think the key thing is that we don't know. Science takes time. Um, we need to see what's actually happening with these patients. The vast majority, I think, that have been reported out of South Africa, which is a very small number, have been young individuals who, regardless of the variants, were likely to do well at home. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with Omicron when it hits an older, more vulnerable population or, let's say, a nursing home in the United States. Um, so and we need to do some of the uh, basic science and we need to um, wait and see uh, to what's going to happen with Omicron. I also think we don't know what's, um, how effective the vaccines are. My suspicion is that the vaccines will likely retain some good efficacy against Omicron just because we've seen good efficacy. Um, uh, with full vaccination for all of the variants. But I think that we need to wait and see what the full degree of, um, uh, of protection is against Omicron. And I think the last thing is we really need to be thinking in, in terms of the future about a global vaccination strategy. You know, this is not something that South Africa did wrong. The problem is, is that we have vast, per, large percentages of unvaccinated uh, individuals um, in high density settings throughout the world with no real hope of getting vaccinated in the immediate future. And that's where new variants will emerge. So while we have been very concentrated on vaccinating the US population, which I think is a really good strategy, the only way we're gonna get variants under control and prevent the generation of new variants is to really think about a global vaccination strategy to prevent the spread across the board. Otherwise, we'll continue to see variants pop up in all sorts of countries and potentially in the United States in pockets where we have very low vaccination rates. The state's epidemiologist, Rachel Hurley, he spoke with CPR's Mike Lamp earlier this morning, and he asked her if she'd recommend to the governor issuing a statewide mask mandate in light of the Omicron variant. Here's what she said. Yeah, so my position as the state epidemiologist is really to interpret the data and share the data with our policymakers. At this point, CDPHE 
um, our, our state health department has implemented vaccine requirements for certain indoor event venues, um, and we strongly recommend masks indoors. And as you know, several counties have instituted vaccine or mask mandates at indoor public spaces. So we know that those are important public health recommendations. Um, I'm not aware of any specific changes to those recommendations at this point. What's your response to that? Um, I completely uh, recognize the um, different demands that are on uh, the governor and CDPHE and their mandates. My personal opinion, and I've signed on to several letters um, uh, reflecting this, is that um, I do believe that a statewide mask mandate for indoor settings is appropriate. I think that we're seeing hospital, unprecedented hospital strain, both from COVID and non-COVID. And we typically, even outside of the pandemic, see increases in, uh, in hospitalizations in the winter from routine respiratory viruses. So masks actually will not only decrease COVID, but will decrease influenza and other things that put people in the hospital. Um, so I'm less about Omicron, actually. My, my opinion uh, predates mm. Omicron. Um, it's that we're seeing such a surge in hospitalizations that's impacting individual patient care that I think a statewide mask mandate would be appropriate. And um, thinking back to the CDC recommendations, um, you know, they have that color coded um, indicator of where transmission is moderate to high um, or severe. And their recommendations are anywhere um, that has high, um, high or severe transmission. Um, we, that there be uh, masking indoors for both vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. I think that's based on really good science. And so my personal opinion is that I think um, uh, that a statewide mask mandate would be appropriate and would not only slow the spread of COVID, but also decompress hospitals. It's the fastest thing actually that would alleviate some of the strain on hospitals from infectious diseases. Uh, and I, you know, I commend uh, the uh, individual counties that have um, gone that way. It's a controversial topic. Um, and I think the politics of it in different counties um, affect a lot of the decision making. But, you know, I know I live in Denver County and, and, and I commend uh, their public health team and, and the mayor for instituting an indoor mask mandate right. in our county. But Dr. Doctor, with all that said, we recently spoke with a pair of local physicians, Doctors Kenlin Q and Matthew Winia, about whether vaccinated and boosted individuals just say, I'm doing all I can here and begin to switch from a pandemic type of mindset to an endemic type of mindset. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that eventually when we do switch to um, the data supporting um, endemic times, then we'll have to rethink our mass strategy. I'm thinking much more acutely in this current phase where we have close to 1,500 um, individuals hospitalized with COVID in hospitals and hospital capacity is 95%. ICU capacity is sitting at 95% as well. Um, occupancy, sorry. Um, which means that we have very little give um, at, before our hospitals literally are unable to take care of all the patients that need care. So I think my focus is how do we in the next couple of weeks prevent us from exceeding our hospital capacity um, where we need to institute crisis standards of care for um, hospital-based triage. And yesterday, um, you know, I presented to the uh, governor's expert uh, epidemic response committee um, a, a new new set of guidelines for crisis standards of care that we drafted specifically out of concern that hospitals will um, start overflowing. And we've seen that in certain areas of, of the state. The healthcare system is cracking at the seams due to high hospitalizations. And I think that a mask mandate would alleviate some of that. But I agree with Dr. Lin Q and Dr. Winia, both of whom are my colleagues and I know them well, um, that eventually we will need to start switching to an endemic um, view of this, but with uh, you know positivity rates of 9%, um, I think that's a seven day moving average um, and hospitalizations where they are, I don't think we're there yet. 
what's it like being one of the people who is actually responsible for for saying what's going to happen and why you are updating the crisis standards of care is it heartbreaking or, or is it more just being the adult in the room and saying we have to make these hard decisions um it's both um so uh i got into medicine to take care of people um and i think that's really you know i i, I always go back every day i wake up i think about that i think about my patients i think about the people i take care of in the icu I think about the fear in the eyes of my patients when we're intubating them, um, not knowing what's going to happen. And I constantly remember the tears of families when I tell them that their loved one's not going to make it. Um, and that affects me every single day. So it's heartbreaking to have to make these decisions um, or even make these recommendations about who should receive certain resources and who shouldn't. That being said, it's also important that we have a fair and equitable and transparent process and so somebody needs to get that work done. And, and, and I've had the honor of, of chairing that group with a bunch of experts, Dr. Winia being one of them, who's an ethics expert. Um, and, um, you know, it, it sometimes it's sometimes you got to you got to be sad about the moment um, and then pull your sleeves up and get the work done. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Anuj Mehta is an ICU pulmonologist with Denver Health. He's advised the state of Colorado during the pandemic on issues like vaccine allocation and crisis care for patients. We spoke today on the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. So what's still in your mind about this new variant? Email us at coloradomatters at cpr.org. Again, that's coloradomatters at cpr.org, and we'll work to answer those questions. More than a dozen alleged instances of sexual misconduct and abuse have gone unreported over the last two decades at the Colorado Center for the Blind in Littleton. That's according to a new investigation by reporter David Gilbert of the online news outlet, The Colorado Sun. Before we go on, caution, this conversation will deal with sensitive topics around sexual assault. David, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. First off, tell us a bit about the Colorado Center for the Blind. It was founded in 1988 and is overseen by the National Federation of the Blind, which has other centers around the country, too. Who does it serve and, and what type of teaching does it provide? So the Colorado Center for the Blind uh, in Littleton is one of three primary training centers of the National Federation of the Blind, a sort of nationwide advocacy organization. And their focus is uh, for to teach uh, vocational and independent skills to people who are blind or low vision or losing their sight. Uh, they have a strong focus on uh, a, a lot of those independence kind of activities, um, you know, beyond uh, job training skills. They also do things like rock climbing, whitewater rafting. And uh, so their, their primary offering is a, uh, a, a one-year training program uh, for, for adults, but they also have programs for uh, kids as young as middle school, for the elderly, and just for other members of the community. And I'll note that your reporting on this was bolstered with an internal investigation by the National Federation for the Blind. The key allegation here, sexual assault and misconduct by center employees, not just in Littleton, but around the country. How many allegations are we looking at here in Colorado and over what period of time? So the uh, internal report, this is this is something that I was working on. This is a, an investigation I was working on well before this internal report came out uh, this past June. Um, this is uh, part of a larger uh, sort of movement within the National Federation of the Blind, uh, where folks are speaking up about sexual misconduct uh, within the, the broader organization. Um, but that 
uh, internal report that came out in June, uh, it listed uh, more than a dozen instances uh, that investigators, internal investigators found uh, of people who reported sexual misconduct, who reported, uh, you know, sexual abuse, and, and as well, a fair number of them who reported that when they told leadership or when they told superiors at the center about these instances that they were told not to report they were uh, ignored they were these instances were covered up um and so you know it's it's tough to say how far back these necessarily go the furthest instance that i found uh was going back to 2001 so at least two decades um i don't have the full scope of every single complaint but but we know at least going back two decades and when the National Federation for the Blind released their own report in June, what did they say about their own findings? Um, well, you know, uh, across the country, this has uh, been an issue. They found that um, there are instances that people have reported at all three training centers, as well as national conventions, state chapter meetings. Um, and uh, they have, uh, you know, pledged a series of reforms in response to this. Um, they have pledged, for instance, a partnership with uh, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network uh, to provide uh, training for uh, staff members. Uh, they have pledged, uh, you know, they have created an internal um, task force, an internal special committee who are, uh, you know, investigating these claims. But really, you know, the the, the broad scope here is that this seems to have been a problem across the organization uh, for a very long time. And so as the center in Littleton said something similar based on response to your investigation as well as the investigation by the Federation? Yeah, they, uh, the center in Littleton has pledged, uh, you know, reform sort of in, in keeping with uh, the, the scope or tone of the national organization um, in the sense that they say that they are providing, uh, you know, anti-harassment training and mandatory reporter training to staff, um, that uh, uh, they will, you know, address this internally. Um, and that's, that's very much in keeping with uh, sort of the tone of the national organization. Now, one of the people you write about in your investigation is 25-year-old Maria Salazar. She says she was drugged and raped a year ago and says she was counseled by someone at the Colorado Center for the Blind to keep quiet about it, essentially cover it up. Can you tell us a bit more about what happened to Salazar? Sure. So Maria Salazar, what, uh, you know, she went through was something that uh, is very much... uh, in keeping with the sort of, you know, style or type or, or scope of, of, of the allegations that folks have made regarding the Colorado Center. She says uh, about a year ago, last November, um, she was staying in an off-campus apartment uh, after the completion of her uh, training seminar, uh, uh, along with another uh, recent former CCB student, um, uh, an older man, she's 25, he was in his uh, uh, 40s. And um, she says that she alleges that he drugged and raped her in that apartment. And she says that she went to the center's leadership, she reported it to Julie Deaton, the director of the CCB, and uh, that what she got in response was another center employee uh, who told her, don't report this, do not call this rape, you will ruin this man's life uh, if you report this. And 
that sort of response, you know, we're talking about something that happened a year ago. That sort of response is very, very similar to allegations that predate this by years. This appears to be very much a sort of standard response that folks associated with the center get when they report these kind of incidents. What's the school's response to what Ms. Salazar told you? Well, by and large, the center has not issued any specific uh, responses to any of the allegations. Um, they have mainly said there's this report that we were talking about was an interim report by the special committee. They, uh, in general, the center has said we're not going to respond until the final report is issued by this internal special committee, which we are expecting perhaps sometime this month, in fact. Why has it been so difficult for people to come forward with allegations like the ones you uncovered in your investigation? I mean, these things occurred at the center for more than two decades, you say. You know, um, for blind folks and low vision folks, uh, one thing that I heard was they're afraid to speak up because the National Federation of the Blind means a lot in their lives. And these training centers mean a lot in their lives. Uh, you know, among blind folks, there's something like a 70% unemployment rate. And, uh, you know, the National Federation of the Blind uh, does assistance with job placement, with assistive technology, uh, and it can provide assistance with housing and even just socialization. Um, and people are, what I've heard is people say they're, they've are they been afraid to speak up because they don't want to lose those connections. They don't want to, um, you know, hurt their own reputations. Um, so that importance, it's, it's, it's not a big social circle. So for a lot of uh, blind and low vision folks speaking up against this organization uh, can be very fraught. Because I'm assuming it's, since it's such a small group that one would know who maybe has these allegations. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. You know, I mean, one thing that I heard was, you know, even if you try to speak up anonymously, people will figure out who you are. And, um, you know, that's among the reasons I've been so grateful for the folks who spoke up to me for my uh, article, because, you know, they've, they've really been putting themselves out there uh, and, you know, fearing uh, uh, repercussions or, or being ostracized. Um, so a lot of folks have been very brave coming forward with a lot of this. David, in light of your reporting and what's come out from the National Federation of the Blind, what's happening with the Colorado Center for the Blind right now? Well, at the moment, it is uh, fairly status quo. I mean, at the uh, at the at the center, there's um, been certain um, there's at least one teacher. There's there's been a few folks who have uh, uh, resigned or been asked to uh, step down. But by and large, I mean, the center leadership is uh, still pretty much the same. Director Julie Deaton, who uh, you know comes up in a lot of these um, allegations that different accusers have made, um, she's still the director. Um, and you know, I would say that the tone is sort of shifting among uh, some of the accusers. Uh, you know, initially, sort of the sense was, let's wait and see what the NFB's uh, you know reaction or response to this is. Let's see how they handle these or these uh you know allegations but by and large across the organization a lot of those accusers are starting to become very frustrated they're they're feeling like 
you know, there have been some resignations of teachers and so forth, but uh, a lot of the leadership across the organization and in these different training centers is still in place. And um, so the tone is really kind of shifting from let's see what this internal investigation comes up with to uh, there, there's, there's more of a focus on a hope that uh, state or federal agencies uh, that provide a lot of the, the funding um, for students to attend these centers may begin to conduct their own external investigations. Um, so that's, that's kind of where this is heading. That's kind of where these accusers are, are starting to take this. David, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. David Gilbert is a reporter for the online news outlet The Colorado Sun. His investigation on the Colorado Center for the Blind reports that sexual abuse and misconduct allegations were kept quiet there for decades. You can read the story at coloradosun.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tis the season for the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, hosted by me, Ryan Warner, live December 8th, masked and vaxxed at the Newman Center in Denver, with performances by comedian Elliot Woolsey, jazzman Freddie Rodriguez Jr., and Naoma. I was about to tell you last night, maybe we should head out. Remember when you were young, Tickets at CPR.org slash holiday. Supported by First Western Trust. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel on the Western Slope. The iconic Cadet Chapel at the U.S. Air Force Academy is deep into an exhaustive more than $150 million renovation project. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce checks on the progress two years in and finds the undertaking still has a long way to go. I'm here with Dwayne Boyle, campus architect for the U.S. Air Force Academy. We're standing outside of the site where the chapel sits. What am I looking at here instead of a chapel? Well, you're looking at an enclosure that's uh, basically surrounding the chapel. So the chapel's actually inside of a building. We call it the cocoon. Cocoon might be one term. The term I might use is big white box. Or hangar. Uh-huh. The scale of the thing sort of boggles the mind. This white cube of an enclosure stands 14 stories tall. Just by itself, it's a huge, pricey construction project. Necessary, though, for just how thorough the work inside the cocoon really is. How's it going? Good. We meet up with construction superintendent Jeff Combs. This is not your first restoration work. I like old buildings, and I like to make them look beautiful again. I've done the uh, Kansas State Capitol and then Minnesota State Capitol also. And they asked me if I'd be willing to do this job, I jumped at the offer. And the three of us head in. It's going to look a little bit different than when you were in here last time. And it really does. First, you almost have to contend with a touch of vertigo, taking in the sight of a 150-foot-tall chapel sitting comfortably inside one vast room. A couple workers are high up in a cherry picker, detaching and removing large aluminum panels from the chapel's 17 gleaming spires, spires made of interlocking triangles. The reason for all this expensive effort basically comes down to one frugal design choice. When the original architect, Walter Netsch Jr., designed the building, he conceived of this elaborate gutter system to drain off rainwater falling onto the chapel. Boyle says that system was abandoned to cut costs in favor of just 
caulking all the seals. We had 32 miles of caulking on this building, which is kind of ridiculous when you start thinking about that. The caulking never really worked. The chapel has been constantly leaking from the time it opened in the early 1960s. All that water damage over all those years led to this restoration, removing every aluminum panel and more than 20,000 brick-sized stained glass blocks, leaving a massive steel skeleton covered in rust-colored primer. Then it's either refinishing or meticulously recreating every single piece and putting it exactly where it was before. Only now, Walter Netsch's original draining system will finally replace all that caulking. I think it would compete as one of the most complicated uh, and intensive historic preservation projects of all time. They're also refinishing all the pews, restoring a 4,500-pipe church organ. The list goes on. We move into what was the grand main room, the Protestant chapel, normally bathed in the awe-inspiring kaleidoscopic light of that stained glass, now unrecognizable. Yeah, now it's just endless steel scaffolding, just as kind of as far as the eye can see. Yeah, there's 14 levels of scaffolding. Boyle says when you go through a process like this, there are always stumbling blocks. And the biggest one here... We knew that there was significant asbestos in this building, uh, but we just couldn't get into all the places where asbestos could be to test. Once they did get in, they found cleaning up that asbestos was going to be a lot heavier lift than they thought. It's going gonna, it's gonna to affect the schedule. By how long? Uh, we're not sure yet. Remind me, what was the expected completion date? 2023. And so it may not be 2023 when it's completed. It will not be 2023. Whenever it is eventually finished, the chapel will finally shed its 14-story cocoon, and one of America's true architectural marvels will stand once again ready to face the elements. At the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. An American ship named after a Colorado city, sits on a river in Pyongyang, North Korea. It's the USS Pueblo, the only U.S. naval vessel held captive by a foreign government. It was taken in 1968. Their crew captured and tortured before their eventual release. As Colorado Matters marks 20 years of sharing stories from across the state, we're revisiting some of our most memorable discussions, like my interview with Jack Cheevers, author of An Act of War, in 2018. Hi, Jack. Morning, Nathan. Since its capture, the USS Pueblo has been a propaganda piece, a powerful symbol of a North Korean military victory over the U.S. The great leader Kim Jong-il said as follows. The brave seamen of our people's army captured Pueblo, the armed spy ship of the U.S. imperialists, which was conducting espionage in our territorial waters, and over 80 aggressors on board a ship. It was a severe punishment to the U.S. imperialist aggressors who violated the sovereignty of our country. That's from a video shown on board the ship, which has become a museum of the Pueblo's capture. First off, Jack, describe this ship for us. What was the USS Pueblo specifically designed to do? Well, the Pueblo originally was a, uh, an army cargo ship, and it was pretty small. It was only 176 feet long. 
And uh, in the 60s, uh, it was acquired by the Navy and very hastily converted into a, uh, a platform for electronic surveillance. In other words, it was a spy ship. And its mission in North Korea was to uh, try to tune in on uh, coastal radar and radio stations and try to pinpoint them so that in the event of war between the United States and North Korea, our aircraft and ships would be able to target those uh, installations. So its job was was to spy and, and to stay in international waters just off the coast of North Korea, protected really only by international law, which dictates how far ships must remain from foreign coasts. Can you give us a taste of the 83-man crew? They were given a ship barely seaworthy. You talk about how the, the engine broke often and rudders were breaking, but it was packed to the hilt with the latest spy technology. Yes, it was. And uh, you're right, it was uh, essentially unprotected. It was sent on its mission without any sort of combat aircraft to protect it. There were no you know, Navy destroyers over the horizon to uh, rush in in the event of an emergency. And it was packed to the gunnels with top-secret equipment, different kinds of code machines, all sorts of um, secret messages that uh, had been sent to the ship by uh, other Navy commands. And it was quite a prize, actually, for the North Koreans to capture it. And so was this crew, were they uh, trained in all of this reconnaissance and covert uh, operations? Most of the crew were Navy sailors, regular Navy sailors, and they were pretty young. They were uh, Most of them were in their 20s. There was a component of the crew who were called communications technicians, and uh, they were highly trained people. They knew how to run all the surveillance equipment. Some of them were uh, trained linguists. They spoke North Korean. They spoke Russian. And those were the people who actually did the, uh, the surveillance work. Tell us about the uh, commander of the USS Pueblo. He was a muscled 40-year-old ex-submarine officer whom a friend called an intellectual barbarian. Yes, uh, that's Commander Lloyd Booker. nickname was Pete, and he was a uh, career Navy officer. He was a very gung-ho guy. He had enlisted in the Navy as a young guy at the end of World War II and uh, later went to uh, the University of Nebraska, got his degree, came out and rejoined the Navy as an officer and went into submarines. And during the the 1950s, he was the executive officer on board three different subs, and they all operated in the Western Pacific. And uh, they all engaged in uh, also in secret reconnaissance and surveillance missions, primarily against the Soviet Union at that time. And by the early 60s, um, he was surfaced, what they call surfaced in the Navy. He was taken out of the submarine corps, and he was given his first command of a ship, which uh, happened to be the Pueblo. And uh, he was... Uh, as you mentioned, he was a very intelligent guy. He loved people. He was an incredible party animal. I mean, he he would organize parties and he would go to uh, you know all these dive bars and all the ports that they they stopped at, and this, he would be singing at the top of his lungs and and just you know swapping jokes with anybody who happened to be around. But he was also a uh, uh, he was a family man. He was he was married. He had two sons. Uh, and uh, he was very devoted to the Navy, and he, he was just a fascinating guy. I really, I spent many hours with him, interviewing him, and I, I really enjoyed him. So it's around uh, 11 years, I, I believe, after the Korean War. The Cold War is in full swing. What were Booker's thoughts about commanding this ship into waters off North Korea to spy? Did he feel his men and, and the Pueblo were, were prepared? Well, he said at the uh, Navy hearing after the crew came home that the crew was prepared. 
for the mission. But I'm I'm not sure that he was he really believed that. Uh, I don't think anybody on the ship anticipated that the North Koreans would come out and actually attack and try to capture the ship. Booker was, uh, you know, this was the first surface mission that he had. He was very concerned about what would happen uh, as he approached a, you know, a, a hostile communist coast. And he asked various officers in the Navy, well, what can we expect? And he was told a couple of times that basically you're you're on your own. I mean, we, you know, we don't have ships or aircraft that can protect you while you're on station. But if anything bad happens, uh, you know, we'll retaliate very swiftly. But we don't think anything bad is going to happen. The Navy had uh, other Navy ships had transited the North Korean coast on similar missions in the in the 60s, and the North Koreans hadn't reacted. But in this case, they did come out and confronted Booker and and opened fire on the ship and ultimately uh, captured the ship. Right. So so the Navy really wasn't expecting anything. So were they prepared for that? I know that he had asked for, you know, a self-destruction system, you know, to destroy all this stuff. But they're like, we don't have that in our budget to give you. And so he had axes and things to destroy uh, the intelligence stuff. Yeah, they just weren't ready for what happened. Uh, The Navy was really caught with its pants down. And and I I don't think, you know, as I, I mentioned, Booker or any of his officers were prepared for what happened. And they were, as you mentioned, they're very poorly equipped to deal with it. Uh, instead of having uh, thermite, for instance, to uh, destroy the uh, electronic equipment, just to burn it, burn through it quickly, they didn't have any any capacity to shred the documents. They had stacks and stacks of top-secret documents uh, on the ship. And all they really had were sledgehammers and fire axes to try and destroy the, the hardware. And the hardware happened to be very well constructed, and the sledgehammers just pounced off them for the most part. Uh, so they, the crew was not able to destroy very much of the hardware or the, the top-secret paper before the North Koreans came aboard. Jack, the USS Pueblo on January 23, 1968, ended up in trouble. North Korean ships and airplanes were closing in quick, so Booker orders his men to destroy all of this sensitive equipment. Uh, they were being fired on by military uh, uh, ships and planes. Take us to that day. Take us to what was happening on board the USS Pueblo. Well, it was a very chaotic moment. The Pueblo was uh, very close to North Korea. It was about 15 miles offshore. It was it was in international waters when it was suddenly surrounded by four North Korean PT boats and two North Korean sub-chasers, uh, both armed with 57-millimeter cannon. The PT boats, of course, had torpedoes as well as machine guns. And there were two MiG jet fighters overhead. And the Pueblo had very little to defend itself with. It had two fifty caliber machine guns. Uh, and no backup guns. was coming. There were no planes, U.S. planes coming, no U.S. ships. There was They were alone, like you said. They were they were all by themselves, and Booker knew that you know his ship was no match for these these other combat ships. So he tried to run. Uh, he turned the ship around and and tried to head back out to sea and and ordered his men to destroy as much uh, equipment and paper as they could. And they were frantically swinging their sledgehammers and their and their fire axes. They were frantically trying to rip apart these very heavy operating manuals for all their surveillance gear while they were being fired upon. And uh, the North Koreans were firing their machine guns at them. They were pumping cannon shells into the ship. There were holes in the ship everywhere. Uh, One of the men was hit in the groin by a a cannon shell. Uh, Basically, his, his leg was all but severed. Uh, There were 10 other people who were wounded, including the captain who was hit by shrapnel. 
And uh, Booker realized that there was no way he could escape if he kept running. The North Koreans would just cut him to pieces with um, all their guns. So he finally decided to stop, and the North Koreans boarded and, and captured the Pueblo at that point. And that's a huge deal. He doesn't fire a shot. He doesn't order shots fired. It It, it is one of the first times, I think, in a long time back then where a ship was seized without any fight from, from the U.S. Navy. Is that right? Yeah, that was the first time that the Navy had surrendered a ship in more than 150 years. And, you know, of course, the, the, the first commandment of the, of the Navy is don't give up the ship. And that's exactly what Booker had done. And he was very, very vilified for that, uh, particularly in the, in the higher echelons of the Navy. I mean, the, many Navy officers considered him a coward and a disgrace to the service. And he couldn't have done anything worse in the eyes of a lot of Navy commanders. So how long were the men in captivity? I know when they arrived in North Korea, they were paraded in front of the North Korean uh, media, and they were uh, essentially used as propaganda pieces. What was life like for them in captivity? They were captured in uh, January of 1968, and they were kept in prison in North Korea for 11 months. They were actually released and came home to San Diego on Christmas Eve in 1968. And they were tortured uh, and, 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 and harassed and beaten up? Yeah, they were subjected to all sorts of uh, physical torture, all sorts of psychological pressure. They were forced to write false confessions. They were forced to write letters home to their relatives saying, you know, please lobby uh, the U.S. government to make an apology to North Korea so we can come home. They're threatening to kill us. Uh, they were beaten with rifle butts. They were uh, thrown downstairs. They they were starved. I mean, they were on this uh, starvation de- diet. I think at one point they were getting about 500 calories a day, and they were losing huge amounts of body weight. Booker lost about 80 pounds. He was a, a good 200-pounder uh, at the beginning of this thing and, and lost a, a third of his body weight, basically. So what was, uh, what was happening back home, though? I know President Lyndon Johnson uh, built up a massive amount of, of military power, naval power, out, uh, out in the Pacific. Yes, uh, uh, Johnson uh, was rattling the U.S. military saber as loudly as possible, hoping that the North Koreans would would back down and, and give back the crew. He sent something like 350 U.S. combat aircraft into South Korean and, North, and Japanese bases. They moved a naval task force into the Sea of Japan, about 25 Navy ships led by the uh, aircraft carrier Enterprise, and they stayed there for months, hoping that the North Koreans would, would back down in the face of this, this U.S. military buildup. Uh, but the North Koreans didn't do that. And instead, uh, they put out feelers to the U.S. that they were willing to negotiate in secret over the crew and the return of the crew and the ship. And so those negotiations started in February of 68 and continued for the rest of the time that the, the men were in prison. And eventually they were returned, and you said they were, they arrived in San Diego on Christmas Eve, I, I think, 1968. Yes, they finally reached a deal with the, the North Koreans. Uh, the North Koreans, from day one, uh, never wavered in their demands, and their demand was that the U.S. sign a written apology for spying in their territorial waters, which wasn't true, uh, and that the, that the written document be signed by a high-ranking official of the U.S. government, and eventually the arrangement was that a major general in the U.S. Army actually did sign that document. But before he did, he said, this thing is a pack of lies, and I'm mm-hmm. signing it to release the crew and only for the release of the crew. 
and that satisfied the North Koreans, and the crew was released, and they came home, and uh, they arrived at Miramar Naval Air Station in San Diego to a, a tumultuous uh, welcome by the public. Uh, all three television networks were broadcasting their arrival live. Governor Reagan was there from California to greet them. It was quite a scene at the airbase that day. So moving forward to today, what what is the, the chance that this ship could be returned to the U.S.? What do you think? Well, I know that people in Colorado have been agitating for this for many years, and I know that the members of the Pueblo crew who are still alive would dearly love to see the ship come home, and many Navy veterans would dearly love to see the ship come home. I just don't think that's very likely. The Pueblo is unfortunately not a very well-known story among most Americans, and there's been no you know, groundswell of public opinion to demand its return. And even if there was, I'm not sure the North Koreans would be willing to give it up. It's a, as you mentioned earlier, it's a huge propaganda prize that they use as as basically a uh, war memorial museum to condemn Americans and and condemn the you know the imperialist aggressors that they claim attacked North Korea in 1950, which of course is not the case. I just don't think there's enough political will to get the ship back in this country. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nathan. Jack Cheevers is the author of An Act of War, Lyndon Johnson, North Korea, and the Capture of the Spy Ship USS Pueblo. We spoke in 2018, and we're resharing this interview as Colorado Matters marks 20 years of stories from across the state. Thanks for joining us, and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. We'd love to hear from you. On Twitter, we're at Colorado Matters, and I'm at Heffel N. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.